Welcome to the East CareerCast, brought to you from the East Section of Career Development. I'm Joe DeBose from the University of California, Davis. In this session, we're continuing our four-part mini-series dedicated to our members in uniform in conjunction with the mentoring and military sections. We're pleased to have Dr. Daniel Bonville here with us to discuss, I'm leaving the military now. What do I do with regards to negotiating and starting the job? Dr. Bonville is an associate professor of surgery at Albany Medical College, where he serves as the product program director in surgical critical care. Ben is an Air Force veteran who left the service, uh, who joined the service in 1994. His Air Force service included four years of active duty, six years in active reserve, four years active reserve, and he was a combat surgeon during Operation Iraqi Freedom, during which he was the trauma IC director at the Lot Air Force Base Theater Hospital from September 2006 to January 2007. Ben has been awarded the Air Force Achievement and Meritorious Service Medals while on active duty, and he has been an active member of E since 2009 and currently serves in the military section. He is also the Vice Chair of the New York State uh, ACSCOT. Dr. Bonville, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Joe. Uh, there are clearly a lot of differences between military and civilian jobs. In the previous episode of this military uh series, we focused on choosing a civilian job and formulating a CV that makes sense to civilians and the interview process. Today, we'd like to continue the conversation with contract negotiation and focus on the transition to a civilian work environment. So along those lines, could you tell us a little bit about your transition out of the military, specifically what things you found the most surprising and most difficult? Uh, A couple things. I think the... uh uh, there is a little bit of a difference in uh, the level of camaraderie, although I think in uh, uh, all the or nearly all of our members are active trauma surgeons, and I think we probably mm-hmm. see a little less of a difference than some of our non-trauma colleagues. Uh, and what I mean is that even our partners who weren't uh, trauma surgeons in the uh, Air Force or other military. Um, uh, Army, Navy, uh, what have you, were uh, they were still, you know, partners, and 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 that is um, probably a little less in the civilian sector. I think there's a little bit more of a business culture in mm-hmm. civilian surgery, um, and I think that was also more difficult because uh, when I was in the service, anyway, we didn't have, uh, we had almost no training in kind of. Um, the finance of medicine, so to speak. Yeah, so along those lines, I have to ask, because this is a topic that I certainly need to understand better, let's talk about contract negotiations for a few minutes. Sure. Overall, overall, how important are those negotiations? And, and is it just paperwork to get through, or, or do the details really matter? No, I, I think it's very important. It depends on how experienced you are. Uh, in the uh, in the military, like if you've reached a kind of a command level, then uh, you're going to have more of a uh, a position for negotiation. If you're coming in as kind of a junior assistant professor after doing you know your four years of active duty, like a lot of HPSP folks are, you're probably not going to have a lot of um, ability to negotiate, particularly at a an academic center or any large institution. A lot of those contracts are kind of what they would call uh, boilerplate contracts, and this is kind of how we. Uh, this is the contract that 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 uh, 
institution gives to all their junior faculty. Um, but again, if you have uh, been, um, you know, a full colonel and or even a lieutenant colonel, you've been in the service for a long time and had command responsibilities, and you you may be going in at a different position, then it's probably even more vital. Uh, that being said. Um, uh, our societies, particularly the American College of Surgeons, has a lot of information on this. They actually recommend that you show your contract uh, or proposed contract to an attorney. There are attorneys in uh, most metro areas that do this for a living uh, for, uh, you know, uh, medical professionals. And uh -huh. it might not be it, – it, I would recommend it uh, as money well spent. Um, you know, I think again the the big academic institutions are probably less likely to to change things in the contract, but uh, it depends on what your needs are. And and who usually presents the contract, or who are you negotiating with? Is it human resources, or the oh. surgeon leader who hires you? Or yeah, it's usually uh, certainly in academics. It would be the chairman of the department, um, and uh, then that's you know who you would be uh, having discussions with. Um, I'm not as familiar with the private setting, but it usually even in that case, I think there's uh, some physician leader uh, that you'd be mostly uh, doing the negotiations with. So uh, what about, how much negotiating power do you perceive that you really have? You know, um, I think certainly if something's important to you, uh, you should uh, ask for it and, uh, you know, kind of be prepared for uh, what the possible responses may be, but if it's important, you shouldn't be afraid to ask for it. You know, as far as uh, how many calls, you know, a lot of uh, programs, and, it, and I think it's becoming a little bit less of an issue, but a lot of places around the uh, country are short-staffed, and uh, if you're getting into sure. a place that may be short-staffed and you want to know, hey, uh, they estimated uh, that I'm going to do five calls a month, I don't want to be there and do, you know, nine or ten calls a month after a while and maybe not have a, a difference in pay, you know what I mean, depending on the – so some people do have that, that yeah. added on their contract. Uh, sometimes, especially in community trauma centers, that may be actually part of the contract where the salary may include five trauma calls a month and then anything over five is paid extra. So those are things that, that are important to find out. Yeah, you already talked a little bit about the importance of having a lawyer review the contract, but who actually does the negotiating? Uh, is it, you know, do you do it, or is a lawyer lead that negotiation for oh, you? That's an excellent question. Um, I would highly recommend against uh, a lawyer negotiating for you. So, uh, it just makes uh, uh, it it doesn't make the surgeon look very very good, and certainly uh, not a sign of uh, somebody who may be easy to work with who's joining a practice. So I would say that, um, you know, that should be somebody who you uh, separately um, uh, pay a, a fee to review the contract and then maybe have a follow-up meeting with even by just telephone uh, and uh, well, during the, the negotiation that may be going back and forth. Sometimes it can take, uh, you know, several weeks to get these things ironed out. But I yeah. would definitely not have the lawyer negotiate on your behalf. Good good advice. And then let me ask you, how picky do we have to get with this contract negotiation? Do I, do you, I mean, you talked a little bit about the call schedule. What about vacation time, office equipment, administrative help? Yeah, I think that uh, also depends on the position that you're coming in from. Um, I think, again, if you're coming in at a junior faculty position, 
uh, you're going to turn a lot of people off if you get too uh, kind of uh, demanding, you know. So I sure. would rate, you know, like a lot of things, rate what you absolutely need to have and, you know, what you would uh, like to have and then what, you know, uh, you could – doesn't, you know, that – stuff that you could do without, you know, so and kind of put it in that yeah. kind of frame and, um, you know, certain and things. What, and what kind of things should absolutely be in there? Malpractice insurance, health insurance, oh, retirement yeah. benefits? Yeah, and I think that's the standard, uh, uh, even in private groups, uh, which are uh, beginning, uh, you know, the small private practice is, is becoming a dinosaur, but uh, Certainly, malpractice insurance, health insurance, uh, retirement benefits, that actually is one of the things that a lot of people don't look into and kind of see what the institution or the practice provides and, um, you know, the tax benefits related to the retirement benefits. Also, disability insurance, that can save you uh, if they have their own policy. That may save you a substantial amount of money uh, as far as uh, you, you may have – you may be able to buy a smaller disability policy if your employer is providing a generous policy for you, although there are tax differences between the two. Okay. Uh, You know, malpractice insurance uh, is is important to find out, you know, uh, what does it cover as far as, you know, after you leave, you know. Yeah, well, yes, that was just quick and half. Speaking of uh, malpractice insurance, is that what it, what is a tail? Define yeah. that for me. I'm yeah. not sure. So I understand. A tail is basically a, a a policy. It's a malpractice insurance policy that allows coverage after cancellation or termination of the policy. So, say you work there for five years, uh, there is a uh, uh, an event or perceived malpractice event uh, that happens in your fourth year but the lawsuit doesn't come up until uh, a year after you left. That policy uh, that includes a tail would also cover that event because it was during the time uh, you were covered during the time where the uh, uh, that the incident uh, allegedly occurred or occurred. Uh, one of the uh, sources I would recommend uh, active duty folks is, uh, you know, talk to your uh, attorneys uh, on the base, if you you know work at uh, uh, you know certainly when I was at Wilford Hall, uh, it was one of the bigger Air Force hospitals at the time, and um, uh, they you know they were available for our um, as a resource for us, so that you could make an appointment um, with these folks and sit down and ask a lot of these questions as, as far as malpractice, and they're they're a uh, a huge resource of knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, that's great advice, Dan. We certainly have those resources on base that we should take advantage of. Um, let me ask you again another question. What about non-compete clauses? What are yeah. those? Are they really upheld in court? That's that's uh, uh, that's a very good question. Um, uh, we actually have them here at uh, Albany Med. There are a lot of um, academic places that have them, especially if there's a decent-sized um, community hospital. Uh, in the area, and uh, from what I've been told is that they've uh, been successfully upheld uh, several times. I think it also depends on your field. Um, I think they're easier to uphold in fields where you have a longitudinal practice or a practice that building a reputation is important. 
um, meaning a building reputation a referral source. So I, uh, I'm under the impression anyway that in radiology and uh, emergency medicine they're much harder to uphold, you know. But okay. uh, in practices uh, like in ours in surgery, uh, that um, uh, most parts of the country that uh, usually if you sign it, uh, it's hard to get out of. And so that well, can be that can be a turnoff. That's something to talk about. And I'll give you my own example. I asked about it when uh, I met with uh, the you know the uh, even part of my uh, second interview uh, several years ago was with the dean. You know, after uh, when the chairman yeah. you meet him and and he basically said there's not much wiggle room. It was kind of that boilerplate answer. But again, I, it wasn't unique. It sounds like. Uh, everybody was got the same answer, which is not okay. uncommon in a uh, an academic institution. Now, in a separate situation, if you're a community surgeon, you've had your own practice, and then you decide to come to a, an institution that has those. Those docs usually don't sign them and, and and are not made to sign them because they have their own established practice. But if you're coming out of the service and you don't have an established practice, and that's a standard at, at that institution, it's it's probably going to be difficult to get out of it unless you have a, a need that is so strong for them that they're willing to, to bend it. It certainly doesn't hurt to ask, but yeah. in my experience, usually they're not very flexible about those things. That's interesting. Um, you know, Dan, I know a lot of contracts are built around clinical productivity. And as you all know, we don't really use RVUs in the military uh, as, as effectively or comprehensively as you do in civilian practice. So can you tell me what, it, what, an, what an RVU basically is and okay. how, many, how many RVUs should an acute care surgeon produce in a year or the resources to help us find out numbers that we can compare our uh, – RVUs and between people with different levels of experience or region or or practice pattern. Sure, the um, RVUs uh, that uh, the RVU first of all is relative value unit. The uh, when basically what that means is uh, it's it's a Medicare term uh, and it uh, has three types of resources: uh, physician work RVU, so that's the amount of time. Uh, technical skill and effort, including uh, mental effort and judgment, etc., that are done to uh, to um, complete a service. Then there's the practice expense RVU. That's the uh, RVU, the relative value unit uh, that accounts for non-physician clinical and non-clinical labor for a practice as well as, like, uh, mm -hmm. building space, equipment, et cetera. And then there's the professional liability RVUs. So uh, we're kind of mostly centered on physician RVUs. If you have an employer, your uh, employer or practice manager or whatever, uh, you know, those folks are going to be kind of picture, you know, uh, looking at the whole picture. But if you're part of a big practice, you as an individual are going to be really looking at the physician's RVU. So the, you know... RVUs, are the average RVUs, the best source if you want kind of uh, all types of practices is probably the MGMA, uh, okay. the uh, Physician Compensation and Productin Reports. You have to be a member of MBA, uh, MGMA to get those reports. Um, 
and uh, they but they're they they're a combination of um, uh, academic and uh, non-academic, and of course the majority of the healthcare in the in the country is provided at uh, community-based institutions, not uh, at the academic institutions. Um, so that that gives you kind of a combination. The other one, if you want a pure uh, academic picture is the uh, AAMC, American Association of Medical Colleges. They have also the uh, compensation and uh, uh, medical school uh, faculty salary reports that come uh -huh. out every year. And that's actually, if your um, base is affiliated or you have a job that's affiliated with the university, you, you may be able to get that information through uh, the library at that at that uh, institution because most institutions have that available. Um, so as far as the number of RVUs, uh, it, it again depends on the average, depends on the uh, uh, in different parts of the country, but uh, it ranges from you know uh, it, it's probably around 6,500. The median is around okay. 6,500 for uh, trauma surgeons. And um, then, you know, you look at uh, what the uh, median salary is, and then they have, of course, 25th percentile, 75th percentile, et cetera. So um, the, uh, as far as how it works is your uh, bonus. Uh, we have, like, a quarterly bonus system that's actually uh, based on uh, collections instead of RVU. And at first, that sounded, uh, you know, kind of discouraging, um, but because, you know, uh, uh, if you have a poor payer mix, that could be a problem, right? And, and so uh, trauma centers that uh, the average, um, you know, penetrating volume in, in the country is around 8 to 10 percent, so most of it's blunt. So you have to even kind of think about, and if you really want to get into the weeds on this, you have to think about, you know, what is the, uh, you know, no-fault uh, liability limitations in, in that state. Some states yeah. have high no-fault, and the trauma centers can be very profitable. Uh, and New York State actually does have fairly high no-fault um, uh, uh, liability insurance uh, uh, base, you know, uh, like a floor that people have to buy to have insurance. Kind of funny, you have to have uh, auto insurance, but you don't have to have health insurance in the country. <laughs> but uh, anyway, the, the RVU is probably a more accurate way, um, but then it depends on, you know, how much your employer is going to pay you for per RVU. You know, so you have to make the RVUs to kind of pay for your salary, and then every quarter or so um, – you 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 would get a bonus, so that's a pretty common way. Now other places are straight salary. Um, yeah. So as well. so if I'm if I'm applying for a job at a new institution, uh, and, and it is RVU based, before we move on to kind of uh, salary kind of based uh, paradigms, is it fair to ask what the other partners in the group are currently get, uh, getting in terms of how many RVUs and their compensation for RVUs or whatever system it's based upon? I think um, what, what you might not get an exact number, but I certainly think it's very reasonable to ask for a range and also ask for, you know, okay, 
um, coming out first year, and uh, very often you should ask for a guaranteed salary too. And usually, that's what does that mean? What does that mean? A guaranteed salary so that you won't, if your uh, production is is lower than uh, expected, which most of the time they set it up so it won't be. But okay. um, you certainly would want some, you know, kind of guaranteed salary so you're not having trouble paying your bills, you know. And then yeah. uh, you also want to know, does that guaranteed salary include call pay or not? Kind of getting back to what I was saying before about the, kind of the average number of calls, is that included in the salary or not? And then, and then also, what would you expect to make in maybe two or three years and then again in five years if you're on a standard growth uh, pattern like other members of the, of the group have been on in the past? You know, yeah. so they 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 should be able to give you that either uh, maybe the chairman or uh, senior partners, some experienced partners in the group that you'd be joining. I think that asking for kind of exact numbers may make people feel a little uncomfortable, but putting it out there as kind of a range of uh, uh, now some places are very upfront with this and say you know this is how many dollars per RVU, uh, you know. Yeah, you're going to be making, and and but other places are are not necessarily as that, uh, you know, uh, and you you know I, I'm pretty sure the audience knows in certain parts of the country, for almost every specialty, uh, you know, docs make more per RVU, say for example, like in the Midwest than they do in uh, the east the East Coast, you know, so yeah, and that's true in trauma surgery as well. Let me ask you another question, Dan. Sure. Production bonuses. Another concept foreign to most military providers. We certainly don't get them in our environment. Um, if they're in your contract, how do you determine if they're actually attainable? Yeah, I think the same thing. Basically asking those partners, are, are you able to – how many times do you hit your production bonus? Is it every quarter? Is it, uh, you know, one quarter a year or, you know, and, and kind of what – what is the uh, kind of percentage to expect in a production bonus? Um, and, you know, like anything, there'll be some people that will be more clinically productive and other people that will be more academic productive. And uh, it kind of depends on, uh, you know, what you uh, what your goals are. Yeah. The other thing, well, of thanks, course, Sam. is if you're, if you're working at an academic place and you're, uh, you know, a researcher – and you're able to get the the funding, you want to be able to make sure that you have uh, protected time for that. Yeah, it's an important piece. Well, thanks, Dan. I've learned a ton. Uh, I guess kind of in closing, I'd, la I'd ask you to take the old 30,000-foot uh, view. And what what would be the, the main message or the piece of advice that you would, you know, give to the audience who's listening to this about negotiating and starting your first civilian job? Uh, I think that um, you have to uh, pick a place that is uh, a good fit for, you know, you, the surgeon, and your family. And also, you know, uh, get to know those uh, folks in the group and, you know, see if they're happy. That's not always easy to do, especially on a first interview, maybe uh, talking to them on the phone in between interviews, trying to to get to know them and see if they're, they're happy. You don't want to pick a place that uh, necessarily is, uh, you know, people are getting killed at, but at the same time, certainly don't want to pick a place that doesn't have enough work 
to go around either. And so um, uh, I think you have to feel good about the fit. And, yeah. Uh, well, that's great. I tell you, uh, Dan, I can't thank you enough. Um, on behalf of the East Section of Career Development, I would certainly like to thank Dr. Bonville for the time to speak with us today. Again, I'm Joe DeBose, and I hope you enjoyed the program. Uh, when you find a moment of time, please visit the East website at www.east.org for more of the East Career Casts and other valuable information. Thank you so much. This is Jamie. Um, this was really interesting and I think applicable to yeah, those of us really. that are, you know, not in the military in terms of the negotiation. And a couple other questions for you. One is, does it matter what type of lawyer that you use for this? Yeah, there's actually um, uh, uh, one group of attorneys that represents lawyers or uh, doctors nationally. And I know the guys that in New York State that started this practice. Now they have uh, offices in Chicago. I'm right now looking up their name because I've just, unfortunately, it slipped my mind. But uh, let me see here. So they would be lawyers that work pretty much just with physicians in terms of contracts and negotiating. Contracts and also physicians that have uh, had uh, either trouble with um, – uh, privileges, like somebody, you know, accuses you of a problem. Uh, you know, again, sometimes people make mistakes and then somebody's got it out for them and then they're, uh, you know, uh, trying to, to can these guys. So they actually work with our state chapter quite a bit. Shopman. Really? That's, that's the group. Michael Shopman, he's a phenomenal speaker. He actually may be somebody that you guys would want to reach out to just in general because he's got uh, a lot of um, – where, what's his, where's his uh, thing here? Yeah, Michael Shopman. Let me just Google it. Right when all else fails. <laughs> Absolutely, Google will solve the world's problems. <laughs> and then one other quick question for you, sure. actually, is what do you think is the most common mistake that you see people, specifically from the military, make when they're transitioning out? Um, that's a good question. You know. Uh, hmm. I mean, the whole the whole environment is a little bit foreign. You can quickly become institutionalized. I speak from having been in 14, going on 15 years myself. So a lot of us are just happy we don't have to do online, you know, uh, information protection stuff the, every, uh, every day. <laughs> The, uh, the 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 uh, trafficking stuff that we have to do every year. Right? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I, We're not getting I mean, recorded always, anymore. I hope. Well, this is just kind of banter after oh, okay. the uh, so, after the discussion. Yeah. But you know, I always get the sense that a lot of people, uh, the perspective is different. It seems like for people coming out of the military, they're more focused on where am I where am I going to live and raise my family? Where what kind of lifestyle uh, is going to be maybe even more important to the young hard chargers coming fresh out of residency and is trying to get that first job or, you know, is that always, I talk to universally to the guys that have gotten out and picked their brains and, and that seems to be kind of a recurring theme. Do you think that's, that the emphasis maybe is a little different? It probably. I mean, I think the, the military surgeon, uh, just having a few more years or sometimes many years, uh, maturity makes a big difference. You know, I think, but yeah. Some of the other folks make the same mistake. I think that uh, young folks coming out of fellowship make, whether they don't really – they're not honest with themselves about whether this is really a fit for them. 
And you know, sometimes you just can't tell, and you're you're you know you ha- you hear stories about somebody who's only there for a year or two, and just because it wasn't uh, it wasn't the right fit for them. But I, I think that's uh, probably I I think probably because of the maturity level, that may even be less common than in the civilian sector. But I, I could be wrong. You know, I, all of us have at least four years or more coming out with some experience. Yeah. Um, this attorney is Kern, Augustine, Conroy, and Shopman. They are attorneys for health professionals. I and they, clarify this is not a paid advertisement. Correct, correct. <laughs> this is not. Yes, yes no. we don't endorse anybody. But, no, this is good. And they work both with military and civilian uh, you know, uh, to my knowledge, I, I don't know. I met them because I'm active in the state chapter and other ACS uh, uh, and other ACS uh, venues. So uh, I've met the one fellow there, Mike Chapman, a few times. He's an excellent speaker, and uh, he uh, and there's probably other uh, practices around the country that do the same thing. But they are actually attorneys for health professionals. So I mean, that's probably if you had to try to find somebody and if you didn't then I would probably just ask in somebody who's good at uh you know being an attorney for contract negotiations I think that alone would probably be plenty uh you know suffice uh plenty Great. Well, thank you again. This was wonderful and I think it's going to be really applicable to a lot of people. So thank you again for your time. My pleasure. You guys have Thanks, a Thanks, Dan. Day. All right, take thank care. Thank you.